Welcome to Pitch Me Not, a podcast that takes you through the first pitch meeting a startup founder has with a VC. But it doesn't stop there. Stay tuned as a VC dissects the startup in a candid debrief once the founder leaves the room. I am your host Rahul, and today I am joined by Joseph Mukano, managing partner at Virch Health Tech Fund, an early stage VC firm based in Singapore, investing in health tech startups. And we'll be talking to Lena Emanuel, founder and CEO of Brainsight, a startup that's building the Google Map of the brain. Now let's get started. Hi, Lena. Thank you so much for joining us. I have with me Joseph from Virch Health Tech Fund. Hi, Rahul. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Great to meet you. Great to meet you, Joseph. Yeah. So uh, I would love to know more about Brainsight and what you guys are doing. Sure. Absolutely. So at Brainsight, the easiest way I have to explain what we're doing is that we're building the Google Map of the Brain that works really well with uh, lay people. But on a more health tech and science tech, the science is essentially we're building a cloud-based platform that allows clinical teams across the world to get access to some really advanced computational neuroscience and imaging post-processing techniques. Now, why is this important? Because this company was started by Dr. Rimshim Agarwal and me, and her PhD was in looking at brain markers for psychiatric disorders. And uh, in the four years that we've been working on this, we've seen immense traction for how this can be used in the diagnosis, rehabilitation of psychiatric disorders. The, the brain mapping techniques that we do is one of the earliest indicators of dementia, and it has huge implications for conducting safer surgeries. So that's what we are building, and I'm happy to talk more about it. That's uh, wonderful. Thanks, Lina, for, for the quick overview. And maybe before we get into the company, I'd love to learn more about how you got involved. Like what, you know, doing a health tech startup is excessively difficult. It takes a really long time. And, you know, you're, you're going to have probably a lot of challenges ahead before you have your successes. So what, what motivated you and what's your own story? That's such a great point. We, I think the four years have been challenging and I, I'm sure there'll be more challenges. So I think I've always been very excited by Impact, Joseph. So I used to work as an operating system designer earlier at NetApp and Infosys. And I loved the deeply technical work, but I was always looking for more impact. And so I shifted completely to international development where I was working on public health issues, everything from maternal mortality to vaccine supply chain, helping the government of India figure out how to revamp their supply chain. So these were big picture questions that I loved working on. But the flip side of working in public health is that it's really slow. So it doesn't compare with the the fastness of IT and I wanted that. I wanted a combination of the two and so I decided to start my own company. We were, I joined this program called Entrepreneur First. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. And they, they essentially bring together deep tech PhDs with non-PhDs. Yeah, which cohort number? I, we were the first cohort in India. Okay, very cool. Yes. And so that's where I met Dr. Rimchim and I met a bunch of other really great PhDs as well. And Dr. Rimchim's PhD was on how do you use brain indicators for better diagnoses of for psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar. And her work was immensely powerful. And I could see it immediately because I had worked in the public health field and I know how much of a problem mental health is. So any kind of diagnostic techniques that can help in making the process even a little bit more efficient has huge potential for impact, has a huge potential for business. And for me, business is a way to create value and to extract value as a return for that value, right? So if you're able to create that value for people where you're helping them with diagnosis and rehabilitation, I'm sure there's a great business there. 
Now, yes, of course, as you said, health tech is a hard one. And we've, we've charted our course quite, quite well so far. And we keep hoping, and we've got some great partners. We work with Fortune 500 companies like GE, Deso Systems. And so that really helps in our amping our journey quite, quite a bit. That's great. And, and, and before you mentioned, you know, brain mapping is the core of your startup. Maybe you could walk me through the process of how that occurs, like how you do your data analysis, what your data sources are, and, you know, may, maybe some of the hypotheses that led into this approach. So, um, there are lots of different neuroimaging techniques. And so you must have heard of a lot of these radiology companies which are mapping the yeah. structure of Connectome. the brain. Yes, Connectome, there are very few impact geosims. So I, I would love to save you one of the first few people who are doing connectomic mapping as a business exercise. But there are a lot of radiology companies which only look at the structure. So think of it, and this is why the Google map analogy works so well, right? You have the structure which is akin to all the buildings. A lot of companies are working on how do you use neuroimaging techniques to map out the buildings. Apart from this, then you have people who are looking at mapping. So apart from the structures, you also need to be able to map your roads and you need to be able to map your traffic. The roads are what is done by a thing called DTI, which is diffusion tensor imaging, looking at water molecule movement in the brain. And so that's how you are able to map the roads of the brain. And the third one, which is the function of the brain, is the activation of the brain, which is akin to the traffic map of the brain. Now, there are functional mapping is incredibly difficult using current techniques. So you've got things like task-based fMRI, which takes a patient 40 minutes, one and a half hours. Now, what we do is a thing called resting state fMRI, which is a 10-minute scan of the patient, where the patient has to do nothing except lie down in the MRI machine. So... That way, we've reduced the 40 minute and one and a half hours of MRI time down to 10 minutes. It then requires very complex post-processing, which we are able to do. The hospital doesn't need to know it. And we're able to send back the activations of the brain along with the roadmap, along with the structure map together, which gives them a lot of insights for things which earlier they had no insights into, which is the psychiatric implications, and also a better alternative for things which they had which was the surgical piece, the surgical mapping of the language. They used to do it with whatever they had, but we're able to do it much more efficiently. So it makes sense. So that's, that's, that's where we started off with resting state fMRI is a new technology. It's like 10 years that it has started becoming much more clinically, uh, much more robust in research. It went through its own Gartner hype cycle. There were millions of papers in resting state fMRI and then it started petering out because then there were a lot of studies on how you really need good post-processing techniques for it to be accurate. And then now when the techniques have become much more robust is when people are trying to take it out of research into clinical practice, we are one of the first few to do that. I guess the probably what a lot of folks probably want to know then is the application of said things. Now, it seems clear if you're able to map functional networks in the brain, you've got a personalized map of where things are and you've you know you have an opportunity to maybe avoid those if you're if you're doing something interventional yes the question i i then have is you know where you are operating how many patients are you hoping to address with this and what are the most urgent clinical applications and then again how many of those are you are you planning to address let's say in a given year absolutely that's a great question so we starting out with addressing 
So if I may, I would love to talk a little bit about our journey itself because it answers yeah. your question. So when we started out, Dimshim's, my co-founder's PhD was in psychiatry. And so we reached out to psychiatrists across the world, the World Psychiatry Association, all of them. And we were like, you know, hey, we've got this brain mapping technique. It's really difficult. And we know that this and we've got this paper in nature which shows that it's great for schizophrenia. That was the paper that Rimchim had published. And we had a bunch of other papers which showed that it can be used for early diagnosis. It can be used for better stratification. And so we went to all these doctors and we asked them as to, you know, hey, do you, do you really think that this could be useful? And everybody said, this is really useful, but we'll adopt it after seven years. And I was like, why? <laughs> so they were like, you know, it has to come into the DSM. It'll take some time. The younger psychiatrists will adopt it. Then we'll see if it works. So we had a great product, but nobody was willing to pay for it at that point of time. So we started talking to neurologists and we started asking them that, you know, hey, this is, and we, we got a grant from the government of India on how you can use this for really early diagnosis of dementia. And we showed our thesis on open source data first, and we started doing a clinical study also to prove it. And neurologists loved it. Again, they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. But then the question, they were like, you know, but there are no medicines. What will I tell my patient if I tell them this is an early diagnosis? How do we convince them to go for an fMRI to see this? And then if we find out, how do we prove to them that this is indeed the case? You know, so they had all of these questions which meant that they were not the early adopters we were looking for. So then at that point of time, we actually started getting a lot of requests from neurosurgeons who want to, and that was amazing because we, it was not even outbound. We were not even thinking neurosurgery at that point of time. And we had a lot of inbound requests from neurosurgeons who wanted this to understand the language lateralization for patients who did not, who did not do a good task-based fMRI or did not agree to a wake brain surgery. In both these cases, the new neurosurgeon was going into the surgery a little blind because he did not know what the language lateralization was. And so that's where we put in our efforts. And so the first clinical problem that we are solving is language mapping and network mapping of the brain for neurosurgical cases. We started off with brain yeah. tumor, and in, in a way it was fortitious, uh, Joseph, because neurosurgeons in a lot of ways are are very influential in a hospital. And so going through them gave us an in, and if we were able to convince them, we were able to convince the neurologists and the psychiatrists, yeah. that was one. The second reason was the neurosurgery patients, once they've gone undergone surgery, go through the neurological department because they need to go for the rehabilitation, right? Yeah. And they also needed, to, and sometimes they would also go to psychiatrists. The fact that through the neurosurgery department, this patient's going through the neurology and the psychiatry department, allowed us to use the fMRI at a very early stage to guide conversations. So that was a great in for us. So today we're working in 20 of the top hospitals in India, which includes your Ames Delhi, Ames Jodhpur, HCG, some of these large hospitals where they're using it not only for language lateralization, and now we're getting a lot of requests for, for the surgery, for any intervention, be it image-guided intervention, be it surgery, be it chemotherapy, what are the possible psychiatric implications of those interventions because yeah. of the effect of the networks? Yeah, yeah. No, it's helpful. So, so far, so two, two follow-up questions, then more on the business side of things. One is how many cases have you actually done in totality since starting? 
And how is your business model working? Like how's your unit economics or is it like a site license? How does it work and how is your business looking these days? Absolutely. So we are at the point where we are starting to commercialize this year. So we have just about started, we've done our certifications like our ISO, etc. in India yeah. right now. And we have two revenue lines right now. One is where you've yeah, got... Before that, how many cases? So yeah, absolutely. So we've done around 5,000 open source cases and we've got yeah. around 70 Sorry, 5, surgical open, open source yeah, so data on which we built the data sets and yeah. we've helped in around 70 surgeries where we've given them the language. Okay lateralization okay. and so that's one where we are doing it clinically where they're using it yep. for the language lateralization we are also now at the point where the base product which is just giving the cortical maps etc is we've gone through our isos for that one we are starting to sell that for contract research organizations as well as for hospitals who are using it not for the language lateralization, but just to make decisions on how to yeah. approach the surgery. So in terms of unit economics, this is a cloud-based product. So the way that we've designed it, our unit economics are positive reach in India, uh, where, uh, uh, let me convert it, uh, MRI, so let me talk in INR for India, and I'll talk in... Yeah, for rupees, and we can work on yeah, dividing it. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. So in India, where MRI costs around 6000 to... 8,000 in a mid-level hospital. and oh, That's cheap. It is very, very yeah. cheap. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it, it is very cheap. So, so for, the, for the other listeners, that's like 80 to 100 US dollars. Yes, indeed. And you're, oh. in your big hospitals, it's around 20,000 rupees. So yeah. it, what we are able to charge for our work is around 5,000 to 6,000 rupees additional to the MRI itself. So that's not bad. It is not bad at all, indeed. Yeah, that's uh, not bad at all. Good job. Absolutely. So, so that's where we are at today. Now, that's where for where we've not got an FDA like even in India, doctors trust the CE marking and the FDA marking Correct. quite a bit, and which is rightfully so. They also trust the ISO, but like they trust the FDA poll. So, where we are doing our FDA pre-submissions and figuring out our applications right now, this is before the FDA. Now, in the contract research piece, so we also get a lot of requests from, from researchers and pharma who are doing these studies on how, let me, um, how diet affects the brain. There, there, you don't really have to prove the FDA part. Like, you don't have to prove the clinical efficacy as much as you have to prove the scientific accuracy of being able to do pre and post mapping. So yeah. that's where we have started charging more. That was also like... Like neurosurgery, they came to us, even though we were focusing on psychiatry, neurosurgery came to us. And whilst we were doing neurosurgery, now you have contract research organizations coming to us. Yeah. So we've now done around three studies of yeah. around 50 to 60 patients each. And we are now, given that we've started seeing revenue yeah. there, and it's easier revenue than the FDA piece, right? We are now going to ramp up on reaching out to pharma and research companies as well. Oh, it's fantastic. Because it'd also be interesting to see the effects of like nootropics and some of these longevity drugs on brain health with time. Indeed. Of course, every pharma company with every neuroasset could see this as potentially useful. Indeed. So so actually, it's, it's quite interesting. Maybe another question around this, more around the business is, given you are a software play and you're getting paid to do a lot of the, you know, clinical research, um, 
Are you guys profitable at this point? No. So this year is when we started making revenue. So we got our ISO yeah. certification in March. And since March to June is when we have started charging our clients right now. So no, we're not profitable right now, but we've started making revenues. Oh, that's fantastic. So maybe the last question I have, so I, I'm conscious of time. What are your current challenges? Like where, where do you need help? I think it has been a learning journey. So I think we are, our team is, we have a 25-member team, which is consisting of neuroscientists, data scientists, cloud engineers, technical architects, all of that. So deeply technical, right? Like it's a very deeply technical team. So the first few years was really about finding the product market fit. And now that we are at the, now this 25-member team is, needs to be augmented with people who can go out into the world and and sales, do sales and do marketing. And so that's where we are at that point right now, and we need to augment the team capacity for that. The second big question, which we always used to get from wedge capitalists was around, we, we are unfortunately or fortunately category creators. And in connectomics, being able to take connectomics out of research into clinical this thing. So the first few years, the big question was just like, you know, hey, you're like this tiny team in India, which is doing this really like a, a team of two women building this really cutting edge work. And like, do we even trust you to build this? And like, do you really think that you can, you can build this? And we've proven them wrong. And I love proving people wrong. So it, it just, it just love. Chip on shoulders, <laughs> chips in pockets. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. So we're coming to that point right now. But like now we also have our, our direct competitor, Omniscient, which is an Australia-based company, yeah. which has just got its FDA. So they were in India for some time. And as soon as they realized they're, they're getting their FDA, I think they changed tax and moved out of India and went to the US completely. So they've removed their India presence right now. So you've got at least, I am really glad that they got their FDA because it, it shows, <laughs> you know, sorry? It's a predicate. Then. Yeah, you can it, use it, it is a predicate. It also shows to a lot of people the potential of what we are building and the fact that we're not just this one tiny team, but there are people who are building this out. I'm sure now that there's a predicate, there'll be a lot more people who are coming in. So we're just like really well poised right now, having worked four years in the space, built the market in India, which is one of the, I, I think the, the, the population levels, the kind of disorder spectrum that you have in India kind of allows you to build a lot more. And with the, obviously the labor arbitrage of us being based out of India is also a really yeah. good thing. And the fact that MRIs, as you've seen in India, are much more cheaper. So all of that, we do be believe that being based out of India is a great this thing, a great competitive advantage for us to be able to build a better product and to build a better business. And as we go forward, we'll be able to kind of take it to the world as well. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. I guess that leads to that kind of foreshadowed my final question is, you know, beyond India, where, where do you want to take this and where do you see the greatest opportunities? We already get requests, Joseph, from across the world. We were presenting at RSNA last year, and we were also yeah. chosen the last the year before that to present at RSNA. We got a lot of requests from universities like Stanford, Yale, etc., who wanted to use our work for multiple things, not just brain mapping, but we are also able to, we work with Deso Systems, which is a French company, which looks yep. at uh, computer simulation, using those neuroimaging protocols to be kind of 
make a personalized brain model for the patient. So being able yep. to do all of the simulation exercises, though that's also our forte. So we get requests for all of those pieces right now. So we've got it from US. We already have a, a study that in Malaysia, where they've reached out to us, we get requests from neurosurgeons in Singapore who have reached out to us. We haven't really, we, we've been shepherding those conversations as we go forward. I think now is the time when we'll start reaching out and actually fulfilling those demands from all of these. We need to be able to kind of spin clouds, clouds in those countries, be in that, that country, figure out the regulatory pathway in those countries, and then go from there. So I think all of those pieces, each, each, market is a new puzzle to solve. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. That's, that's it for me for now. Yeah, I mean, one last thing, you mentioned about the competitor, right? So how are you guys different from them or are you you're doing the same thing as them? Not exactly. So they started off with, uh, so as I said, like in the brain, right, there are two pieces. There's the roadmap and then there's the function map. So they started off with looking at the roadmap and uh, and showing the connectivity at the end of the roads only, right? So that's known as structural connectomics. We started off from the other side, which is the functional connectomics, which is taking the whole brain map and being able to show the fun. Structural connectomics is great for surgery. Functional connectomics is great for depression, bipolar, neurological disorders. So as we go forward, that was one of the key things that kept us apart. Now, as we go forward, both of us are incorporating both those things. But we also, one of the other big things about what we are doing is, we not only look at the map, we don't talk about this often, but we uh, we not only do macro mapping of the brain, we also do micro mapping using metabolomic uh, profiling of the patient. So being able to look at the macro view of the brain along with the micro view of the brain allows you to to a lot more magic. I won't even talk about the kind of magic that can be done with that. Okay, and so what do you think? Your approach or your competitor's approach as a starting point? Which one is a better one? <laughs> that's a... That's, that's like asking, like, who do you like more, your mother or your father? <laughs> well, uh, I think I think the, the, the challenge is going to be, you know, ask us again in five years, sort of. Yeah. Answer, because it's impossible to project forward. True, indeed. And as I said, Rahul, I think yeah. the structural connectomics piece is great for surgeries, right? Like for all surgical cases, which includes everything from brain tumor, epilepsy, Parkinson's ablation, all of those, the structural connectomics bit is perfect. While the functional connectomics bit, which is which is the more de novo, the new things, right? Like how do you use functional connectomics for for striation of depression, major depression, or how do you use functional connectomics for very preclinical diagnosis of dementia? And getting that into the clinical pathway is a more difficult one, but also has a much bigger market. And I guess the, the key differentiator, I mean, aside from the merit of the research and the modality that's using as input is around capital efficiency. And Indeed. as you said, the labor and data arbitrage. I mean, uh, a group, I mean, look, if it's costing you six to 8,000 rupees to do an MRI scan, that is not comparable with how much it costs in Australia. Indeed. Absolutely with you, Joseph. Yeah. I don't have anything else. Uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rahul. I, I really and appreciate right. the questions. Thank you, Joseph. Nice to meet you, Lina. Nice Good luck. Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> so, debrief. 
Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the, most so of the, it went over my head. <laughs> yeah. So that I think that is my one piece of feedback in that this was a very technical conversation. I think it would have been interesting to see how Lina would have or could have pitched to more of a late person. Even yeah. still, I could I could tell she simplified certain aspects, but you know, trying to make this universally appealing for a more generalist investor audience would be, I think, challenging given the given the way the conversation went. I think one of the things that would be helpful for her going forward, I mean, okay, I think she told the story really well. I think she yeah. made the business case really well, but I do think it helps to pause, ask questions, make sure that the other end of the conversation is, you know, grasping the concepts, has any follow-up questions, you know, just checking if they're they're still there in terms of the in terms of the conversation. You know, your your potential audience has a wide variety of backgrounds and attention spans. And yeah. you know, there are two ways to address this. One is stop and pause and look for, you know, cues and indicators. And the other way to do it is be more pithy and finish the thought in 50% yeah. of your words and see if there are any, you know, follow-up questions or clarifying questions. That is, that is one observation. The, the answers were kind of very, very long and, it, it sometimes took an effort to to sit through all of it, especially, you know, we're, we're distracted by everything around us. And, you know, VCs are notorious for, you know, playing with their phones while listening to a, to a pitch. The, the, the other, the other thing is there were a lot of qualitative descriptors in the answers and incorporating more hard facts and numbers would have kind of maybe created a, a stronger sense of, trust in the data, maybe. I know, again, this is another stylistic thing. Some people like more qualitative kind of stories. Other people like hard facts, kind of like them both weaved within one another. So if there's an opportunity to insert a number, insert a number. I think, I think that's the, the other thing. She was remarkably candid with her, you know, product market fit journeys, her various, you know, pivots, her hypotheses some of the ongoing challenges around, you know, being more commercial as an organization. I think she could have gone a bit deeper, but maybe it was, you know, the first meeting and maybe you want to put on a strong face and kind of, you know, answer, answer your weaknesses with more strengths in a way. So, you know, we're a super technical team. We're really, really smart. Trust us. But, you know, we need to learn how to sell more. I think there are probably more, challenges than then then meets meets the eye and maybe a bit more of that would have would have been helpful to kind of engender a sense of trust that that being said i i actually do think it is a pretty interesting company i also didn't ask too much about the competition because i actually know one of the co-founders of nishant i know their journey so i didn't really i didn't really talk too much about that and i think it's also not appropriate to Ah, okay. Okay. So would you have another conversation with them as like a follow-up? And if yes, like what are the things that you would dig deeper? Yeah, I think 
if I were to understand where they are in their journey and if it fits kind of the stage mandate of our fund, which it may or may not, I would be open to a follow-up conversation and I would actually want to dig a little bit deeper into their business model, dig deeper into the science to understand, you know, how cutting edge is it really? Another thing would be to understand, okay, from those procedures that were done, the 70 surgeries, what were the outcomes? And there's, is there an appreciable delta versus what the outcomes would have been without this software being used? And I don't know if they have that information. I don't know if they can make those inferences. Yeah. Also, it'd be great to meet the rest of the team. Yeah. And in terms of the numbers, like uh, she mentioned 6,000 that they charge per scan, right? So those are like really small numbers, right? You would ideally want to be in US and getting revenue from those sort of markets. Well, I, I think it depends whether you want to play a, a quantity or a margin play. Now, yeah. if, this gonna, if this is going to be incorporated as a standard step for most you know, surgical interventions, maybe some of these psychological interventions, you know, a hundred US or sorry, I guess this is like 80 US dollars in India. That's yeah. actually not bad. And if you can get it, you know, 200 to 300 US dollars per, per scan in the US, that's also not bad at all. I mean, if you're doing, I don't know, a hundred thousand of these, that's pretty good. And then that's one product line and there might be other things they could be using to generate business working with the CROs on research projects. I mean, if, you, if, if you're a pharma company and investing $300 million in developing a drug and this helps you increase the chance of success or the opportunity to kill it early, then that's worth a lot. It of saves money. a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. It saves a lot of time and money, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you should be able to take a piece of that. Yeah. And, you know, the competitor company, they went to US directly, right? So that's usually the approach of most healthcare tech companies. They will usually, <laughs> because that's where all the money is from a healthcare spending perspective, right? So is, is what that should be the strategy or not? Because, you know, even in SaaS, general B2B SaaS, you go to US when you're really ready. Uh, otherwise, there's competition and then you, that competition can just kill you, right? So. I mean, look, it's, it's hard to argue against a three and a half trillion dollar market that's responsible for 55% of the world's spending on health. You know, it's hard to argue against it. It is possible. It is possible to succeed without the US. So then the question is, it's not a matter of perhaps it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. And if you're yeah. coming to the US with an overwhelming data set and overwhelming confidence in that your solution is superior, that's a much better starting position than it would be to start early in your journey to go to the US. And the thing is, you may be able to actually get a greater value delta if you accumulate that critical mass of information in a low cost environment. Whereas, yeah. and so you could run faster and you can run better than someone who's doing this in the US from ground zero. Yeah. You approve really well in your market and then be ready, really ready when you go to the US. Yeah. But yeah, you definitely have to go to the US. Yeah, but the, the beauty is if you're starting in a, in a market that has 1.4 billion people and you're able to get an appreciable amount of it, yeah. the amount of confidence and certainty you have in your conclusions will be much, much, much greater. And 
you know, you and you'd probably have seen a, a wide variety of use cases, perhaps a wider variety of use cases than you would in, uh, in the US market. So it, it might yeah. be interesting. It is kind of one of the theses that sub theses or sub hypotheses that we have in our own investments in that, yeah, they might start in South Africa or, or you know, or Vietnam or Eastern Europe, but, you know, eventually they'll finish in the US. Yeah, uh, this was great, Joseph. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Now, Rahul, it's been a pleasure and hopefully this is uh, useful.